everyone, Erin Hilliard here, Artistic Director of Pinchgut Opera. This is my first podcast in a series that breaks down for you beautiful things in Baroque opera. I take you through Baroque opera history and I explain conventions, techniques, scenes and famous arias. I want to help you understand the genre better and maybe through my ridiculous obsession with the subject you might take away a better appreciation of Baroque music. I'll be talking to my colleagues and friends all around the world about their love of Baroque music as well. And along the way, you'll learn about language, composers, instruments, voice types, famous actors and singers, and performing styles of the past and the present. I'd be so happy to hear your feedback. So do let me know if there's something you like about the podcasts or if you'd like me to take you through your favourite opera scene or aria. I've designed it a bit like a wine appreciation course will dip into delicious glasses of music in order to savour and relish them. In fact, that's how I've always envisaged pinch gut. Just like wine, there's just so much wonderful music out there that warms the soul. And unlike other companies that concentrate on tried and true operas that we all know and love, pinch gut likes to be more daring and introduce you to styles and operas and composers and singers that aren't so usual in the mainstream opera world. We're basically the boutique wine bar with all the weird and wonderful stuff, but also with those dependable favourites that you love as well. Today I want to talk about a very famous scene from one of my very favourite operas, and that's the incantation scene sung by Medea from Cavalli's Giazzone, with a wonderful libretto by Ciccolini. It was very famous and became a model for composers and librettists for over a century. I want to explain some of the features of the incantation scene today, and I'll also be speaking to Celeste Lazarenko, who sang Medea for us back in 2013. Pinchgut has performed two operas by the great Cavalli, Lormindo when I was very young, and Giazzone when I was just a little bit less young. I have to say I love 17th century Italian opera because it's just like a play set to music. The action is so fast, the Italian is so witty, and the music is just so condensed and tangy. It's like a it's like a good red wine reduction. The score is so simple. It's just two lines, basically, a melody and a bass line. And because it's so underprescriptive, there's just so much scope for interpretation by good performers. You can really put your creative stamp on this kind of opera. And I think Pinchgut does it really well. Let's briefly rehash where Giazzone sits in music history. The first operas took place in courts. They were expensive and lavish affairs that could only be afforded by princes and kings. They weren't public. Monteverdi's L'Orfeo was one of these early operas. Fast forward 30 years, opera goes public. Enterprising entrepreneurs figured that what was great for princes and kings could actually be enjoyed by everyone. Quickly, public theatres were set up and box offices were opened. And for the price of a ticket, you too could get the very best in entertainment. Opera as a viable industry was born. Venice was the first city to have public opera houses and the entertainments there were considered to be the greatest in the world. An English traveller in 1645 wrote back to his friends in England saying, This night... Having taken our places before, we went to the opera, 
where comedies and other plays are represented in recitative music by the most excellent musicians, vocal and instrumental, with a variety of scenes painted and contrived with no less art of perspective, and machines for flying in the air and other wonderful motions. Taken together, it is one of the most magnificent and expensive diversions the wit of men can invent. This held us by the ears and the eyes till two in the morning. Cavalli, the composer of Giazzone, was at the forefront of this new kind of public opera, and he generated hit after hit. Giazzone was the most widely performed opera of the 17th century. It was so popular in its day that it inspired a play which existed independently of the opera. This is a really rare thing indeed. And from its premiere in 1649, Giazzone enjoyed unprecedented revivals all over Italy for 40 years. Why was it so popular? Well, 17th century opera expert Ellen Rosand believes it was because Giazzone represented an ideal meeting of music and text. Gone was the slightly stuffy and literary atmosphere of earlier Venetian operas. In its place, Ciccolini developed a new kind of comic fluidity to complement the fast-paced and complex action, all the while making sure to draw the serious characters and situations out with virtuosic lyric poetry. So we have a really superb libretto, witty and diverse and complex, and Cavalli responds to Ciccolini's work with equal skill and imagination. And so for the first time in the history of opera, librettist and composer seem equally responsive to each other's craft. In Giazzone, writes Rosand, the definitive separation of aria and recitative was finally achieved. Formal distinctions were clarified by dramatic function with recitative reserved primarily for action and commentary and arias for formal songs or moments of intense reflective feeling. Now, this is the way, guys, that opera was to be organised for centuries. We have lyrical moments or arias reserved for special moments of poetry and emotion, but we have speech-like moments, and that's recitative, which is reserved for the narrative for things that move the action forward. Certainly the variegated audience in Venice at the time, tourists, aristocrats, merchants, prostitutes, servants, intellectuals, all these people, they felt that this recipe of aria and recitative was a success and that Ciccolini and Cavalli had created a new and enduring kind of theatrical experience that could be enjoyed by anyone willing to buy a ticket. Giazzone is the opera that began it all.
That's the Symphonia to the opera Giazzone uh, from our 2013 recording of the production. At the dawn of the 18th century, a group of opera-loving intellectuals in Rome decided to gather informally to discuss the future of the genre. They called themselves the Arcadians, and they sought a return, as with all operatic reforms, to classical simplicity. Squarely in their sights for critique was the 17th century's most performed opera, Ciccolini's Giazzone, set to music by Francesco Cavalli. To the Arcadians, Giazzone was their worst nightmare. Their spokesperson, Crescim Berni, allowed graciously that Giazzone was the first and most perfect drama in existence, he said. But then he went on to outline all the abuses committed by composer and librettist. Crescimbeni deplored the mixture of classes, as well as the impure combination of comedy and tragedy. Just as in Shakespeare, who was similarly criticised, Cavalli's Giazzone placed side by side with a monstrousness never heard before, kings, heroes, and other illustrious characters, with buffoons, servants, and folk of the lowest extraction. The Arcadians felt that operas like Giazzone epitomised everything they wanted to expunge from the operatic tradition. Strong female leads, men in drag, and improvised slapstick. Even the aria itself, which they felt contributed to the overall decay of verisimilitude, was earmarked for expulsion. In fact, the Arcadians wanted to get rid of everything that had contributed to Giazzone's success. Now, we'll talk more about the Arcadians another time and how they changed 17th century opera and created what we now call opera seria. But let's rewind the clock again and talk briefly about the aspects in Giazzone that annoyed the Arcadians, but also what attributed to its great success. Not only was it a great story, but Giazzone established conventions and traditions in opera that were to continue for many decades. That's partly why the Arcadians hated Giazzone. The conventions that flowed from the opera were becoming tired and stale and cliched after 50 years. Think about a film, for example, that was pioneering in its day, but then was heavily copied in both style and substance. I can certainly think of many. Giazzone was a bit like that. Giazzone established and consolidated scene types. Some of them include the lament scene, the comic scene, the music scene, the love duet, the sleeping scene, the incantation scene, which we're talking about today, and the mad scene. Some of these scene types persisted all the way to the 19th century, and in fact, some of them can still be found in cinema. Now, Giazzone didn't invent them, but Cavalli and Ciccolini perfected them. A great historian and musicologist called Ellen Rosand has written a great book that goes into depth about all of these scene types. If you're interested in learning more, check it out. It's called Opera in 17th Century Venice, The Creation of a Genre. I'm going to be talking about some of the other scene types I've mentioned in other podcasts, but today we're just going to look at one scene, and that's the incantation scene. And the aria that started it all is called Delantro Magico, and it occurs in the final scene of Act One. Although the incantation scene in Giazzone did not establish the tradition of a magical scene in which a powerful character summons up demons and infernal spirits, it was certainly to become the most famous. The scene was copied by librettists and composers for decades, and they, in turn, became famous themselves. 
Other examples of incantation scenes include Berengario's Numi Tartarei in Sartorio's Adelaida from 1672 and Eleonora's Le Crude Eumenidi in Polarolo's Atone from 1694. There's also a hilarious parody of it. Think of like Mel Brooks' parodies of genres and films. It's that kind of thing. In Legrenzi's Totilla of 1677. Now, I wish I could play you some examples, but these operas have never been revived or recorded. Maybe that's a job for Pinchgut. Ciccolini, who wrote the libretto for Giazzone, is up there with the greatest librettists of the 17th century. Ciccolini's librettos were more varied, they were more individualised, and they were poetically more sophisticated than those of his Venetian contemporaries. They really stand out for their mixture of comic and serious characters. And Ciccolini also controls metre and rhyme to distinguish clearly between what is an aria and what is a recitative. And he's in fact clearer in this distinction than the other great librettists of his time, like Busanello, who wrote Poppea, and Faustini, who collaborated with Cavalli a lot. He wrote Il Callisto, which you might know. What's interesting is that Cavalli still asserted his privileges as a musical dramatist by imposing his own form on Ciccolini's strophic arias, and, even more characteristically, by setting recitative text lyrically for emotional purposes. Now, Monteverdi does this too, and it's actually fascinating when you look at composers who creatively subvert the librettist's texts in their musical settings. Now, today you're going to learn a little bit about Italian poetry, as we have to do that in order to understand the incantation scene. I promise you it won't be too boring, because Italian is one of the most beautiful languages. And of course, it's perfect for singing because of the purity of its vowels. Lines in Italian poetry can be made up of certain number of syllables. And each line can end in three ways. We give those line endings Italian names. Lines that end with the accent on the final syllable are what we call tronco, which means cut. So you think about Don Giovanni. Notte giorno faticar. So faticar has an accent on the final line. So a word like pietà has an accent as well. Now, lines that end with the accent on the second last syllable are called piano, which just means soft. And these form the bulk of Italian poetry. Words like amore, sospiro, there are so many of them. Many, many Italian lines end with a piano ending. So we've talked about tronco, where the accent's on the final syllable. We've talked about piano, where the accent's on the second last syllable. And the third line ending is called strucciolo, which means sliding and the accents on the third last syllable. So think about la donna mobile, mobile, the accent is on the third last syllable. So in most Italian opera, the verso piano, the piano verse, the soft one, is the standard form. But you hear versi struccioli and tronchi can be used for special effects, where you've got the accent on the third last syllable or on the final syllable. And one of these special effects was for incanting or summoning up magic spirits. Let's move to the aria now. Medea is the queen of Colchis and the lover of Giazzone. Isifili is the betrayed princess who Giazzone has betrayed. Medea's incantation scene occurs at the end of the first act and it 
highly contrasts with Isiphile's previous number, which was a lament monologue. This emphasises the disparity between conventional and non-conventional modes of female eloquence on display in this amazing opera. Isiphile is depressive, emotional and lamenting, and Medea is dynamic, active and complex. Medea's rhetorical prowess is invincible. The hammering chords we'll hear shortly in the aria we're discussing indicate her magical strength. It's Medea who controls the action in Giazzone, and not the title character. Ciccolini represents Medea and Isifile as opposites regarding sexuality and virtue. They're kind of like a twofold representation of the classic abandoned woman. It's Medea who's endowed with eroticism and sexual appeal, whose power emasculates the hero Giazzone by engineering the rescue of the Golden Fleece. But Isifile, she laments. She's been abandoned and wronged. And even though she's allowed Giazzone in her bed without the benefit of marriage, her virtue is earned through the conventional feminine means of suffering and loyalty. So let's go to Medea's aria now. We spoke about special effects in Italian poetry, and this aria has quite a striking one. And it's the defining aspect of the incantation scene. Let's see if you can spot it. Here's the text. Del antromagico stringenti cardini il varco apritemi e fra la tenebri nel negro spizio lasateme. Can you guess the line type? Exactly. It's the strucciolo line type. So each of these lines ends with an accent on the third last syllable. Del antromagico stringento cardini. And the translation of that scene is in this magic cavern, you creaking hinges, open wide for me, and into the darkness of the black hospice, let me go. So she's in this extraordinary place, and she's summoning the infernal spirits from the underworld. Now, this weird line ending, this sliding verso strucciolo, has been associated with spells and strange beasts and rustic gods since the 16th century. It conjured up images of an ancient time when gods still ruled the earth. In conjunction with this special line ending, these incantation scenes were also accompanied by an infernal or a magical setting with appropriate lighting and grotesque costumes, and often there were choruses which represented spirits and demons, and they were often hidden behind the scenes. Now, although it didn't initiate the convention, Medea's aria, probably more than any other, assured the popularity of these kinds of incantation scenes. It's a real centerpiece to the drama, and it's a real tour de force for Medea. Let's hear the wonderful Celeste Lazarenko in our 2013 Pinchcut production sing the first part of this aria now.
You just heard the first part of Del Antro Magico from the final part of Act One of Giazzone. And that was the Pinch Cut production featuring Celeste Lazarenko. You'll hear that the orchestra is very small in Cavalli operas. They spent all their money on sets and costumes and singers. But in that production, we enlarged the orchestra beyond what Cavalli would have been used to. This often happened when these public operas went back to courtly spaces and princes could actually afford the orchestras. We at Pinchcut like to treat our audiences like princes and princesses, so we enlarged the orchestra accordingly. So you heard percussion in there and also a regal in our excerpt, which is the snarly, farting sort of sound that you heard, the organ there, which was traditionally associated with the underworld and made famous, of course, in Monteverdi's L'Orfeo, where it accompanies Pluto. You'll notice in that recording, the aria we just listened to, that the vocal writing is very triadic. It jumps up and down by leaps, so there are no steps. There's no lyrical expression here. It's just, it's just Medea's forceful incantation. Cavalli sets the characteristic rhythm of the verso struccolo with a long, short, long rhythm, which countless other composers would do in these incantation scenes. In fact, this peculiar rhythm... Da 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 would be associated with the underworld for ages just on the strengths of these line endings in Italian. So composers like Haydn and Mozart, a hundred and fifty years later, even use these rhythms to conjure up infernal images in their operatic and instrumental works. Listen now to those characteristic rhythms in the Act 2 finale of Haydn's La Fedeltà Premiata, where the characters remember an infernal storm. So you can see that Cavalli's influence was pretty extraordinary, that these rhythms remained in collective memory for over 100 years. I guess this is a little like Buster Keaton's stunts in the 1920s. They still have the capacity to awe us even now in 2020. And in fact, some of those big stunts in Hollywood films are just elaborations on Buster Keaton's amazing daredevil stunts. Let's go back to Cavalli now and listen to the second part of this aria. Thank <laughs> you. 
these incantation scenes also included choruses. In fact, they were the first scenes to have choruses in public opera. And they're generally hidden from the action. The spirits are somehow behind the scene or hidden somehow, and this this must have heightened the uh, special effect to the audience. Here is the chorus element from Medea's incantation scene. For our pinch cut production in 2013, I actually followed 17th century practice and basically asked the principals to sing this off stage. You can hear that Cavalli paints the word vacillar, which means to sway in a really cool, seasick kind of way. primarily associated with the incantation of spirits and the invoking of the underworld, these verse types with the accent on the third last syllable, the versi struccioli, were also used when hell or the world of darkness or of ancient gods was invoked figuratively out of jealousy, fury or some other emotion. You can hear versi struccioli in Ecuba's aria from Didone by Cavalli, in which she invokes the spirits of hell as she seeks to purge herself of her what she considers her weak, lamenting emotions. You'll hear again those familiar rhythms, da, da, di, da, da, da. The incantation scene seems to have outlasted all the other scene types from the 17th century. It persisted all the way to the 19th century. But it hardly developed at all. It remained impervious to stylistic change. Because of the versi struccioli, the incantation scene imposed a kind of straitjacket on composers. And this rigidity gave the scene something unchanging, something primitive. Its very stylistic anomaly evoked a sense of dark antiquity, is how opera scholar Ellen Rosend puts it. You can hear these qualities very clearly in another demonic scene from over a hundred years after Giazzone, which in itself became another classic that was subject to imitation and parody, and that's the underworld scene from Gluck's L'Orfeo. Do you hear how Gluck uses exactly the same rhythm as Cavalli? 
it's a testament to the power of these this kind of scene that it was able to be featured in the opera house for hundreds of years. So we've looked at the incantation scene and its most famous exemplar from Giazzone. Now, Celeste Lazarenko, she sang Medea in our 2013 production, and she joins me now to chat about that experience and also about singing 17th century music. Hello, Celeste. How are you going? I'm okay. Gosh, can you believe that was that was seven years ago now? That's quite, it doesn't, it doesn't quite feel a time like walk. It. <laughs> Doesn't it? <laughs> I know. Well, I don't know. It feels, I guess, because in quarantine, everything just feels like it's one interminable day. But um, it all feels a bit blur- blurry, all of this quarantine stuff. I don't know about you, but it's sort of it's hard to know what day it is. And going back to this recording of Giazzone, like, I don't know about you, but I generally hate every recording I've ever done. <laughs> yes, I know what you mean. And I'm really sensitive about it, but I'm so proud of this recording. It is a beautiful work and it's amazing how much artistry there is in it like it's quite shocking going back to it I don't know how you feel about it that is amazing you say that because you know just chatting with people on Twitter and stuff I think a lot of people are listening to music in a really different way in quarantine yeah and so when I I started listening to this I was like oh my god this is really really good (laughs) and particularly this scene because I knew you know, I knew of the prominence of this incantation scene. And I remember, oh. like, listening to it, we actually did a lot of detail that I don't remember. Um, yeah, you know, exactly. like each bar, and there's a lot of orchestration, and your diction is beautiful, and the pacing of the scene itself is amazing. So I agree with you. I started listening to it, and I, I don't want to say I dismissed it, but yeah, I think our listeners would probably be surprised to know that artists like us have conflicted relationships with recordings. You know, you, you do them. Yeah. And then yeah. you're immediately critical of them in ways that you yeah. that people probably don't imagine. And I also remember, because yeah, I, I just feel like you know, especially with the voice and with instruments, particularly you know, in orchestras, that they're built to be in an acoustic, and often the recording just can't quite capture what kind of space you're in. And thank goodness that we're in Angel Place because what an acoustic! I mean, it's just it's a dream to sing in there because you can do very little and be very artistic and it still completely reads and it still rings and but yeah look I I I don't know about you but when I do recordings I'm very sensitive about how the space is is recognized within the recording because like for singers for example often we're asked to sing in dead studios and I just find that often it doesn't, it, it can't capture the same kind of element that it is to actually be in an acoustic. I remember you telling me that specific experience once when you had some challenges with a, a recording and, and yeah, an acoustic, it, it really film. plays into it. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I personally find the, the live streaming component that's been brought out with the quarantine quite, quite tricky because I'm like you, I respond to instruments and spaces and other people. And that's because we, that, because we do opera. I mean, those things are intrinsic yeah. to the craft. Exactly. Um, it's like you have to be like, it's like you actually have to be part of all of those elements in the one room. I suppose that's, that's what opera gives you is this experience that actually, you know, recordings are fantastic. And this recording, like, yeah, it's a beautiful thing. But seeing live opera is just such a special, special thing. Well, we can't wait till um, that happens. <laughs> when we're yeah, able to do that, I know. <laughs> yeah. Um, and how, is, how? Yeah, so this aria. Look, can I ask you a question about this aria? Because I know Please. you're an expert in all of this kind of stuff. Would 
would you say that this aria that instead of like I always feel like Monteverdi is writing accompaniment to singing but this aria specifically is trying to create like a special effect <laughs> yeah exactly like it's it's not just accompanying the the singing it's actually creating a sense of atmosphere completely and which is so new I mean that's um that's exactly why this opera was so important in 17th century opera music history, but also in just the development of opera itself. Mm -hmm. um, because, yeah, it's so atmospheric. And, um, and, and what yeah. Was that I, strange, what's that strange instrument that you're playing? Oh, yeah, that's right. So called. in this, yeah, yeah, that was called a regal, the farty, the farty, the yeah, farty instrument. The, the kind of <laughs> amazingly twangy Australian yeah. one that kind of sounds like really twangy Yeah, yeah, Australian exactly. Sound. Very nasal. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's the yeah. regal, which was traditionally used for underworld scenes and in fact was famously used in Monteverdi's Orfeo to accompany Pluto. So I remember right. I... I brought that in. I remember <laughs> the budget for the keyboards in this particular opera was enormous that year because we right. had two harpsichords, an organ and the regal. Um, yeah, so I remember, didn't we have that one joke one time where, because there were so many strange instruments in the pit <laughs> when we were yes. doing this. We used to have this running joke that you and I couldn't actually, I couldn't see you conducting from the stage uh, <laughs> through all of this through mess all of the like fjorbos, <laughs> fjorbos yes. loops. Yeah, um, the regals, all the funny yeah, instruments. Yeah, amazing instruments. So they're fascinating to to hear because you know, like doing so much, um, you know, high romantic opera. I suppose with the with the Australian Opera Company, hearing those instruments is just such a, a mind blowing thing to the contemporary ear. That's great. I was going to ask you how singing Cavalli is different to your other operatic roles. And I guess those instruments are part of it. What, what else would be different for you if you were singing this rep? The big difference fundamentally is that these operas have a huge amount of text. I mean, huge. I mean, if you look at the kind of opera texts that in Verismo opera and stuff like that, they're actually quite minimal in comparison to this. These are like epic stories with huge poems that are that are written and I think the thing is about these is that they're very true to text rather than flamboyant singing and so it means that the story actually becomes the most important element in the in the opera and it's not that it's better or worse I suppose it just means that it's very text driven and it also means that you have to be musical you have to be musical with this kind of music you have to have a sense of understanding of text, but also doing something with it. I love what you say. This is, I, I, I can't agree with you more. And I think that's why I like this kind of music. Often I try and use it as a teaching tool because I think mm -hmm. for a younger singer, exactly, when you've just got text, which is a lot, you know, like I tell, yeah. like instrumentalists, when they play, there's no text. I remember, you know, you talk to a Baroque violinist and you say, what's this piece about? You know, you can't grasp at anything. Whereas with us, we look at this incantation scene, we have a text, we know, we know basically what Ciccononini's trying to say. And you look, you're so right about the amount of text. I remember with this production, Celeste, that when we did the surtitles, <laughs> um, yeah. I remember that the operator and also when we were putting them together, it was like, um, this has more lines than any other opera <laughs> that we've ever done. <laughs> like it was like, I don't know, 5,000 lines opposed to, yeah, you're right, like I, a Verismo like piece a, would have hardly. Yeah, I, I keep thinking if a Verismo piece was written with this much text, it would be Wagnerian in <laughs> It would be like the ring cycle. Of like, <laughs> <laughs> well, 
I mean, this uh, opera, I remember cutting this show. Oh, my God. It was so long. You know, it was about mm. five hours long at the time, so we cut it to three. Yeah. Um, hey, can I, can I tell you a funny story, though? Because the text is quite oldie-worldie, I suppose, in, in Italian form. But um, <laughs> I remember so clearly Andrew Goodwin. He's such a delight to work with. And he was playing, what, who was he playing? Um, he was playing the role of Ajao, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> and he had one line to say to me towards <laughs> the end of the opera. I remember I this managed, now. I've managed to find in my score. Hang on, let me just find it. Oh, that's amazing. Um, you got the score out. Wow. Yeah, I've got the score out and I've got everyone's translation and it's just very funny. And it's, Il fu che con quel ferro di cui conserva la vagina in seno. So vagina... <laughs> <laughs> which is spelt the same way as vagina in yeah that's right uh in english uh which actually means the sheath of a sword and so see he says la vagina in seno which is uh the sheath of my of my breast yes, <laughs> which, yes. you plunge and, plunge that into my breast yeah yeah exactly. vagina in seno yeah, yeah. So, so um, every but i have to say every time he said it on stage he'd have a little little smile and it would just <laughs> set me off <laughs> oh, he's man. very cheeky to work with but he's a delight actually can I just say that was like dream casting, that whole cast. It was um, a fabulous, oh, look, and um, Miriam Allen as a Cifale oh and my David God, Greco, that, oh, Alex. But the, the aria that, that um, Miriam sings at the end um, was just heartbreaking. I, I yeah. remember being on stage and like all of us were just yes. gobsmacked. I mean, because also she's, you know, she's kind of a mouse that roars as well. Yeah, completely. So it was just like um, yep. this beautiful very heartfelt aria and then it's you know it's just this woman's lament of being in pain and being abandoned yeah. and yep. oh I just remember being so moving and yeah I hope um I hope people go and listen to this CD again because I tell you that I was so moved by that aria well I listened that's funny you say that I then listen I'm, I'm going to do another podcast on the lament and I'm going to include right. that incredible lament but for yeah. me personally, um, and I, I know you and I have talked about this for many years, mm -hmm. um, you know, I tend to invest personal experiences in, in art, you know, and I remember I'd been dumped by my last yeah. boyfriend yeah, <laughs> just <I'd>... before <laughs> this opera. And I remember debriefing to you about it many times, but that yeah. aria about being, you know, betrayed and dumped <laughs> and I know, Miriam because... singing her heart out every night, I was just in tears, you know. Oh, I know. And... Look, but the whole, because the whole opera is about betrayal, you know, like. Isn't it? Yeah. Jasoni leaves, uh, leaves his wife and two children and has an affair with Medea and then goes back to her. So he's is a sort of double betrayal. And then, yeah, and then Medea also dumps her partner. Like, it's just, it's all about people. But isn't it funny because, I mean, however long it was written ago, we can still connect with it on so many levels because humans are flawed beings. And to see the flaws in other gods and goddesses is kind of, you know, connects us all together. We're not all perfect. And yeah, we get heartbreak and we get dumped and it sucks. And 
it's great that you can kind of see it being played out by other people as well. Well, I know. I, yeah, this is why I love this 17th century repertoire because it's so human. It's just, it's like, it's like a Shakespeare play set to music. And do you remember when we started? And it's funny. It's funny as well. Like there's really funny moments That's the other thing I loved about it. But I I remember when we started to rehearse it, um, we realised that the main character was actually not Jazorne, but Medea. (laughs) I mean, your, your character who you sang, if you remember, I mean, you're the one who does everything. You get the golden fleece. In this scene, you're the one who brings up the support of the underworld. Like all yep. the action is in, is instigated by Medea. Um, yeah, she's she's certainly uh, like a strong character. weirdly, yeah, just such a strong female character. I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, like right up until Mozart, women were really celebrated on the stage. I mean, yeah, absolutely. You know, I I find that after Mozart, there seems to be I don't know, women become victims, and mm. actually. Yeah, Medea is this incredibly strong woman. I mean, she can conjure up spirits, for God's sake. You know, she can, she can, is sort of a woman who forms her own destiny. And they're sort of, you know, quite contemporary characters, I suppose. I suppose that's why we can relate to them, especially women. Well, I love, I love this particular, I mean, the Medea story is interesting because, of course, we just cancelled doing Charpentier's Medea. Right, um, yeah. And it's the same story, but of course, it's the much more tragic element, you know, where she murders her children. I mean, it's full on, right? Oh, but yes, this, of course, yeah. In this version, it's much earlier. It's the early, you know, earlier part of her incredible life, you know, as comes by the Greeks. And of course, what I love about this show too is that you come in singing about the sexual pleasure you've just had from a man. Um, and that is really remarkable that, um, you know, that first aria that you sang. Um, you're coming in going, oh, my God, I'm so this hot hero, oh, yes. J- Jason, yes. you know. And what a, what a wonderful thing for a character. You know, it was not – and also for a Venetian audience at the time, they, they, they really enjoyed hearing women talk honestly about their emotions and their physical mm. pleasure, you know, and that was – yeah. I, I love that sort of 17th century stuff. The whole idea of Venice in that time is a pretty fascinating little, you know, microcosm. You know, it just it, – there's so much detail, I suppose, in the opera that – gives you a little window into the things that they loved as, as well about, you know, entertainment. Oh, incredible. And yeah. so what would you recommend to someone wanting to listen or maybe sing this kind of repertoire for the first time? Like how might you recommend them they go about it? Because it's quite different to Wagner or Mozart. Anything really of this period, and I'm sure you'd agree with this, is all text-driven. So yes, exactly. it's always starting fundamentally at understanding what you're saying and, you know, being able to pronounce everything properly. I mean, that's really what I always like to start a score with. And also understanding, you know, <laughs> it's funny, some singers will write in their own translation and then they won't actually write in anybody else's so they don't yeah. really know what know. else is going on it's all opera. about it's all about me uh, i know but also the blank looks that they have sometimes when you're singing <laughs> they just have oh, yes. no idea i've had that many times and you when you're asking about a scene and so this character <laughs> just yeah no because idea. often i mean sometimes these kinds of operas are so convoluted they have such incredibly complicated storylines that often there'll be a subplot that's going on that you have no idea what it's about you're just like Oh, but I go off because all all you're thinking is like I go off and I get changed backstage into my next costume and I come back and then we start the storyline again. And meanwhile, there'll be another completely different storyline going on and you have no idea what's going on exactly, which actually happens kind of in this opera too. 
these other oh, I remember sort of all those other... subplots. Yeah. <laughs> I know. The subplots can be very confusing. So make sure, like, in some ways that you have an idea of how it's all structured, how it all goes. The language is paramount in this. So I would say get with a good coach. Um, we're lucky that we've got Nicole DiRigo and she worked on this particular production as well. I'd say that is definitely the starting point to one of these things. But also, I mean, you know, seeing that um, Cavalli and Monteverdi work so closely, listening back to some of Monteverdi's stuff and then realising how it changes between the two and how kind of Cavalli kind of evolves some of the Monteverdi ideas and kind of forms, I suppose, like more of a structure of opera in more that sort of like recitative and aria form. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's. I mean, in this, in Giazzone, it's um, you start to get the beginning of that really clear definition between aria and recitative. Yeah, um, exactly. But that's everything you said. I'm so heartened to hear that you say that. I would also say too, because you know, when I put on this CD, it's not like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do some dishes and put on Giazzone, <laughs> <laughs> because yeah. I think a lot of our listeners today, you know, if you put it on, there's a lot of a lot of what sounds like recit. When yeah. I when I sit down and listen to it, I actually want to sit down and listen with the libretto in front of me. Yes, um, absolutely. Yeah, that's what I'd that's what I'd say. Yeah, definitely for anyone that's listening to this for the first time, definitely sit there with the translation um, with the libretto because the word painting is so amazing. Exactly. Yes, and so precise um, and so small on very small yeah. scale. I guess that's what I said earlier. You know just when we started the interview, when I started listening to this, I was like, oh, wow, we all were really, all of us, the whole cast and the orchestra as well, really responsive to all the adjectives, yeah. you know, like in even just your opening, Delandro Magico Strindenti Cardemi, you know, the yeah. screeching hinges, you know, I remember uh, the, the, the strings are doing these screeching sounds. Like, I just yeah. love that. And I think you <laughs> yeah. miss it if and you even, don't even in the words, even in the words of like, il va qua pritemi, like the mm. opening up of Yeah, the, exactly. Yeah, that's like right. The way, the way that exactly. he these words are, I mean, like, it's almost like, and actually I was thinking about this earlier, it's actually really like song repertoire. It's that details. Exactly. You know, in terms of word painting, it needs that much attention to text that, yeah, it, it really is very, very detailed. If you sit there with the libretto, you're going to get some sense of how that all fits together. That's what I used to do as a kid. I don't know if people do that anymore. I mean, I remember I used to listen to operas and I would um, get a bag of salt and vinegar chips. <laughs> that was my... <laughs> That was my go-to thing as a, as a 12-year-old, 13-year-old. It still is. And I still have that sense taste of when I taste salt and vinegar chips, I'm, I'm reading Italian opera. It's nuts. It yeah, has been yeah, so lovely to chat with you today. Yeah, you I wish too. we were yeah. actually able to see each other in the flesh, but I hopefully oh, that will be sooner than later. Yeah, I hope so too. Yeah. But look, thanks for letting me delve back into this because I'd forgotten just how amazing this work is actually. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that, you know, Flippantly, it is, it is a really great work. Well, you sing it so beautifully. We can do so many other works and yet we'll still come back to this kind of music and love it because, because of the, the way it's formed. It's just, it's genius. Oh, it's been so lovely to talk with you, Celeste. Thanks so much. And you, you do take care of yourself. Thank you. You too. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed our first podcast. Uh, next podcast, I'll be speaking with Chaz Radashiba, one of my favorite uh, collaborators. And uh, we'll be talking about why we love Baroque opera so much with lots of great examples. 
In the meantime, stay safe and I look forward to reaching out to you in our next podcast. All the best. Thank you.